Today, friends, we are beginning a brand new message series. It's in the book of Esther, and it's called Esther Made for This Moment. I'll give you a little spoiler alert. If you want to go ahead and read the book of Esther, you can go right to chapter 4 and verse 14 if you want to find the key verse to the book of Esther. I'm not going to tell you what it is, though. Esther narrates the account of a Hebrew Jewish woman who's not living in Israel. She's actually living far away to the east in a pagan country called Persia, and she's living there in the capital city of Susa. Now, it's interesting because when you think about the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures talk about God's dealings with his people most of the time, the historical events take place in the land of Israel. But this takes place far away from Israel, over east, in the capital city of Susa, in the Persian Empire. So, at the, the timing of the event, Esther is living there in Persia. It's about 480 years before Christ. Esther is born as a young girl. She's born Hadassah. Hadassah is a Hebrew word that means myrtle tree, but she becomes Esther. And the word Esther means a star. So you can already tell by just her name that Esther is a star in the making. And God is going to make her a superstar and a hero to save his people. Esther, of course, ends up marrying the king of the Persian Empire. His name is Xerxes. Another uh, name that he has is Ahasuerus, if you might read that in some of your Bibles. I was reading my new King James Bible this morning, and his name came out Ahasuerus. But Xerxes is the name we're going to use for these purposes. And of course, it's the story of a woman who helped save her Jewish people from annihilation, from an evil villain, and his name was Haman. So let's dive into it together. Esther is considered a bit controversial as being uh, divinely inspired uh, in our Bibles. Now, why is that? Well, one reason why Esther is considered uh, perhaps controversial to be included in the Bible is because in the book of Esther, God's name is not even mentioned one time. Let's go to the next slide. So God's name isn't mentioned one time in Esther, but his hand of providence is evident all throughout the book. So even though there are no miracles chronicled in Esther, you can see God's hand of providence uh, behind the scenes, evident to bless his people. Now, it's very interesting you, to use that word providence because our founding fathers, like George Washington, for example, when he would, when he would reflect on the Revolutionary War and all the amazing things that happened that helped save the Continental Army from the British and how many times they escaped. For example, after the battle on Long Island, New York, when they were completely defeated by the British, they were ready to be wiped out. That was right in the beginning of the war in 1776. And then all of a sudden, God allowed the fog to roll in over the harbor so that the boats could go back and forth across the river and the Continental Army could escape in the middle of the night in a fog in the middle of late August, which was totally unusual. That is called providence. That is where God is at work behind the scenes to safeguard and care for his people. And I, I want you to remember that word providence because you're going to see it show up over and over in this book of Esther. 
Esther is an amazing story. Besides just being a good story in drama, it is a story with deep theology. The main point being that God fulfills his promises to save and redeem his people. And he doesn't always do it with outstanding miracles like parting the Red Sea to save the, uh, the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptian army. Sometimes God is just at work through ordinary historical events. And even non-believers in this story, such as a pagan king Xerxes, they are guided by God's sovereign hand to contribute to the good outcome of his people. And yet, even though uh, I see God's hand all over the book of Esther, there were some people, some Christian leaders in history, who didn't even think that Esther should be included in the canon of Scripture. One of the persons was Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, he didn't like the book of Esther. He didn't want it included in the Bible. Esther, when the, when the great Reformation began, Martin Luther said this, I wish that the book of Esther had not come to us at all. And I'm, I'm scratching my head saying, Martin Luther, why would you even say that? Well, you have to know how Martin Luther felt about the Jewish people. Martin Luther was not a great friend of the Jewish people. And so he didn't see the name of God mentioned. He didn't see the covenant. There was no miracle in the book of Esther. And so uh, Luther uh, was not right in denigrating the Jews. But the book of Esther, of course, shows us that God loves his people even while they were living in pagan nations as a result of God's judgment and being put into exile. God wanted to protect his people, even if it seems like it was behind the scenes and less obvious. So let's go to our historical setting. Today, we're, we're pretty much going to do an introduction to the book of Esther. We're going to talk about chapter one, this big banquet that is given by Xerxes. And then we're going to introduce two characters to you. Uh, Esther's cousin named Mordecai, and then Esther herself. So uh, I want to show you a movie clip because it sort of gives you an introduction to the city of Susa and Esther and her cousin Mordecai. So please give your attention to the screen. Rebecca, what kind of housekeeper do you think you are? Serves you right for bringing home your work. The caravan arrived this morning. Well, Susa is the capital of the known world. Caravans arrive every day. Not from Jerusalem. Mm. Well, perhaps you ought to go back and ask them if they'll arrive at the same time next year. Next year? You promised. Rebecca! Fight your own battles. You don't pay me enough to fight the battle for you. Good morning, Adassa. And where have you been? I'm sorry, Grandmother. The market's really busy. There's a new caravan in from... Uh... Sore subject. Uncle Mordecai, does not your own heart long to see our people restored to glory? It does. He did not seriously great conquer Babylon and free our people from captivity. He did. And do we embrace our freedom and leave this pagan empire to embrace our destiny? Of course not. Oh, Lord. I pray to you day and night to give me the patience of Job. Give me the wisdom of Solomon. And what do you give me? You give me the endless equivocations 
of a beautiful young woman. <laughs> Just wanted to give you an introduction and a taste to the, the beginning of this uh, movie. I, I think that was from a 2013 movie called One Night with a King. Uh, Esther. And you see Esther introduced here. Her name is Hadassah. In the Hebrew, it means myrtle tree, one of the popular trees there in Israel. And then she says her uncle Mordecai because he was older, but it was actually her cousin because Esther's parents had both died. Her father was Mordecai's uncle. So they were actually first cousins and they became family members together. We'll get into the details of that later. Um, in the movie, it's showing a caravan that is going up to the city of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire. The caravan was coming from Jerusalem a long way away. It made its trick its trek one time per year. And of course, Esther is talking about, hey, Mordecai, is this the year that we're all going to pack up and join the caravan and go back to Jerusalem and go back to God's country, go back to the land where God wants his people to live? And of course, Mordecai said, no, not this year, maybe next year. And then Esther says, well, how are we going to fulfill our destiny living here in this pagan land? <laughs> well, we're going to find out. God used Esther and Mordecai in a mighty way to save his people all over the Persian Empire. So let me give you the historical background. The Jews were judged by God. They were taken into captivity by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586 BC. That was the third of three invasions. And finally, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. The gates were burned with fire. God's people were led off into exile into the Babylonian empire. They were brought 600 miles to the east, living in Iraq and also Iran. So now uh, in 539 BC, the Babylonian empire is conquered by King Cyrus of the Medo-Persians. And after he conquered the Babylonians, King Cyrus issued a decree and he said, hey, whatever Jews want to leave uh, the empire and go back to Israel, you guys have the freedom to do that. And Zerubbabel led a group of Jews from the Babylonian empire back to Israel in the year 538 BC. Now, this story right here takes place in 483 BC. So we're talking about 50 years have passed by and Mordecai and his family and his cousin Hadassah, Esther, they're all still living in the capital of the Persian Empire in Susa, and they haven't gone back to Jerusalem. And you might wonder why. Some Jews chose to stay in the pagan countries. Mordecai was one of them. And we're going to see why, because God used him greatly for that, uh, for the salvation of his people. So let's go right into chapter one, and we'll get right into the story as we go. This is slide number seven. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Kush is another word for Ethiopia. If you know your map and you say, wow, India to the east all the way to Ethiopia to the west and the south, that covers over 2 million square miles. It was the biggest empire in the world at that time. They say that half the world's population lived in this Persian empire at the time. And at the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now it's about 50 miles or so east of the Tigris River. 
Uh, so you can look it up on a map if you want to. If you have a study Bible, you can look it up that way. And in the third year of his reign, so Xerxes started reigning in about 485 BC. So the third year of his reign would be 483. He gave a banquet for all his nobles and, and officials. So this huge banquet, this banquet was corresponding to this great plan that Xerxes had. He had this huge plan. He was gathering his nobles and all his military leaders together and his war council because he wanted to rally support so that they would mount a huge army to go and conquer the nation of Greece. And you're saying, yeah, hey, you remember that movie 300? Some of you, some of you guys especially love that movie 300 where the Spartans go and 300 of them fight off the Greek army or the, excuse me, the Persian army for a, for a long time. This is that same Persian king that had come with his hordes to conquer the Greeks. And of course, Xerxes failed to conquer the Greeks, just like his father, Darius the Great, failed to conquer the Greeks 10 years earlier and was defeated by the Greeks in the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC. So Darius the Great, his father died, never conquering Greece. Xerxes, his son, wants to avenge the humiliation of his father. He wants to gather up all the Persian army and go and just completely conquer the Greek, the Greek lands, Macedonia and Achaia. And so he's holding this huge banquet to rally support for this effort. And after the 180 days, that's six months straight of having a banquet. That's a long, that's a long banquet. I, I imagine there, were, there needed to be some weight loss programs after that. Um, so then Xerxes holds a second banquet and it says in, when the days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So after 180 days, now you just have a little shorty one that only lasts seven days. And he had this banquet in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa, right? Everything seems normal at that time. No drama, no nothing. Uh, in verse number nine, Xerxes' wife at the time, her name is Vashti. It says, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. You know, in the Middle East and in, in the, that part of the world, and that's still true today, they kept the men and the women pretty separate. And so the women had their own banquet and the men had their banquet. And on the seventh day, which would be the last day of the banquet, right? King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, AKA, that means he was drunk. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti. Apparently she was beautiful and he wanted to show her off um, to bring her uh, b before the, the people and the nobles uh, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty because Vashti obviously was beautiful. She was lovely to look at. And so he's wanting to show off his queen to all his nobles. And the only problem is Vashti decides not to cooperate. And this is where the drama begins. This is where the, like you'd say the providence of God is at work. Uh, because you ask the question, well, how does, how does Hadassah, Esther, how does this no, nobody girl, Jewish girl living in Susa, how does she end up becoming the queen of Persia? Well, it begins right here. Because when Xerxes called Vashti to appear before him, when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. I'm not coming. You can command me to come all you want. I'm not coming. 
And of course, the king's reaction when he doesn't get his way, you can imagine King Xerxes, the king of basically the whole world at that time, he's used to people obeying his commands. And when he, and when he has somebody who says, I'm not obeying what you're telling me to do, he became furious and he burned with anger. Wow. So we're not told why Queen Vashti refused the king's command. Did she have a good reason? Well, she may have thought it was against Persian custom to go and show herself in a public gathering of men. She maybe think that was shameful for her. She, her body, her beauty was only to be seen by her husband. Uh, she may have actually been pregnant with her son because the chronicles are that sometime that next year, their son Artaxerxes was born. By the way, 40 years later, this is the same Artaxerxes, that son of Vashti and King Xerxes, who was king of Persia when Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to him, and Nehemiah asked per permission from Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So uh, very interesting how all this history weaves together. Uh, so Vashti refused to come. The king became furious. At any, rate, at any rate, her refusal to go and parade herself in front of the kings and his nobles, this is what set off a whole chain of events. And you wonder like, okay, so something bad is happening here. How is, how is God going to take this and work it together for on behalf of his people? Remember the verse that Paul wrote about in Romans 8 verse 28. He says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And you think about all the times in your life when you had a crisis or you were in trouble or you needed help and you cried out to God for help and he helped you. I would venture to say that many times that God helped you in your life was not necessarily an outstanding public miracle. Maybe you were uh, the recipient of one of the miracles of God. But if you weren't and God still answered your prayers, he answered them providentially. In other words, he was working behind the scenes, invisibly, but on behalf of you to care and take care of you and help you get out of a, of a jam. And that's the way God mostly works. God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let's see how God works together here. So Xerxes, remember, he's furious his queen just refused a direct order from him to show up to display her beauty in front of his nobles. And so he asks a question and he says, according to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Now, what behind, what's behind the scenes here is there's... He's, Xerxes is in a very public place. He's in the middle of a banquet with his officials and his military commanders. The king wants everybody to see his power, his might, his authority. Like we should follow you. We should mount up a huge army one more time and let's go avenge your father's defeat uh, years earlier and let's go conquer those, those pesky Greeks. If, that, if those men were to see now that he says, Vashti, come and show your beauty to, my, to everybody and to my nobles. And Vashti says, no, I ain't coming. And then he now is going to look bad in front of his own nobles and military commanders. They're going to look at him and say, man, if he doesn't even have any authority over his own wife, 
what kind of credibility is he going to have as a military leader? Why should we follow him into life-threatening battle? So his fitness to command, Xerxes saw in himself, his fitness to command then would be in question. And he just cannot let that defiance go without a consequence. Now, to me, it's obvious these noble rulers around the king, they were sycophants, which means they were just wanting to say whatever they thought the king wanted to hear. No doubt they saw the king got really mad and he was upset and angry. So they were going to run with that anger and they were going to make this, you know, him do a decree that would make him feel better and would protect all these poor husbands who might feel threatened by their wives and the authority in the home. So he says, for the queen's conduct, that this is what the Persian noble said in answer to that queen, what do you think should be done to Vashti? And he says, well, you can't just let it go, king, because if the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, they will despise their husbands and they'll say, well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she wouldn't come. This very day, look at the major consequences throughout the empire. This very day, the Persian and Median women, Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct, they will respond to all the king's nobles, all their husbands in the same way, and there will be no end of disrespect and discord. My goodness, these guys are ramping up the stakes here. The king, if you don't do something about this and punish Vasti, there could be domestic chaos in every home. We've got a crisis on our hands. If the queen's actions are made known, there would be a lack of male rulership in every household in the kingdom. Women would just rise up and rebel against their own husband's authority. And so that opens up an opportunity. And according to uh, what we have here, Vashti's defiance, it opened up an opportunity for the men and the nobles. And so here's their advice. They say, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. She's banished forever from his presence. And let the king give his royal position. And here's where the God's providence comes in. Can you see it? And let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. You guys know where it's going because Esther's going to be that person, right? So uh, it's interesting when you're thinking ahead and the rest of the story, look at how all these Persian men were trying to control all the women in their empire and how later a nobody, a Jewish woman ends up outsmarting the most powerful and the most clever of the Persian nobles, the evil Haman. Now, everyone must know what happened. Every man should be on the guard that there won't uh, be any rebellion like Queen Vashti did to her husband, the king. Can't let that rebellion happen in their homes. So the decree goes out through all the land and that every man should be ruler over his household using his native tongue. So the offended king makes sure everybody in the empire knows their wives are not going to be controlled and rebel against their husband's authority. So I think what Xerxes is saying, men, men of the empire, I'm not going to allow rebellion in my house and you shouldn't allow it in your house. 
So let's go on because we've just introduced Xerxes. The two main characters in our story are coming up right here in the beginning of chapter two. We're only going up to verse seven. And this is um, the choosing of a new queen, right? So the, the nobles say to the king, let the king's personal attendants uh, they proposed this. They said, O king, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province. You got to go all the way down to Ethiopia and announce this announcement. And if there are any beautiful young virgins in e Ethiopia, bring them back up all the way to the capital city of Susa. Bring all the beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel, at the citadel of Susa, the capital city. And then here it is. Let the girl who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. So now there's going to be this big beauty contest. Here she comes, Miss Persian Empire. And, and whoever's going to win this beauty contest is going to end up being the new queen of all the Persian Empire. And it's going to have tremendous influence. So the next person that we're going to be introduced to is Mordecai. And it says here, now there was in the citadel, living right there in the capital city of Susa, a Jew, and he was of the tribe of Benjamin. By this time, the Jews that were led into exile were only from the southern kingdom of Judah. They could only be from one of two tribes. They either had to be from Judah or from Benjamin. So the, the historian writing this got it right. This man was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's where King Saul came from. By the way, that's where the apostle Paul came from. Saul, uh, he was also of the tribe of Benjamin. He was named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shammai, and the son of Kish. Now, by the way, Kish was the name of Saul's father uh, of the tribe of Benjamin 500 years earlier when Saul became the first king of Israel. Uh, this man, Mordecai, had been carried, in, his family, his ancestors, had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So this had all happened about uh, right around the year 600 BC, and now we're in the year 483 BC, so there's been a few generations to pass by. Uh, probably a very young boy, Kish, was taken into exile, and then he had a son, and they had a son, and they had a son, and pretty soon Mordecai was the descendant of this. And Mordecai is now living in the capital city of Susa. So now we are introduced to Mordecai. Let's meet Esther. So Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Remember, Hadassah means myrtle tree, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Doesn't say how or why, but she was an orphan. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, remember Esther means star. She had a lovely figure. She was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when his father and mother died. So uh, Esther becomes part of Mordecai's family. She was born Hadassah, but now she is Esther. And at some point in her childhood, tragically, Esther lost both her parents. We don't know if it was due to a terrible illness or a plague. We don't know if it was an accident. We don't know if it was a horrible crime that happened to them. But what we do know is the good character of Mordecai. Because Mordecai, her cousin, took her in and made her a family member in his own family. And one of the things that I get, one of the lessons I get from Mordecai's example is that family takes care of family in a crisis. She was an orphan, right? Her father's name was 
Abihail, you can read that in Esther 2.15, and that was Mordecai's uncle, and they took in Esther, they raised her as their own daughter, he taught her to be a God-fearing, God-honoring young woman, and I want to pause and I want to make a point here. Because often you and I, we read the story of Esther or we just think about it and he says, oh, Esther, she's just a beautiful, happy-go-lucky girl living in a pagan country and she gets chosen to be king by the, the king of the whole Persian empire and she becomes a savior and a hero to her people. What, what we forget about is the difficult beginnings in Esther's life, right? Things in life early on did not go Esther's way. She lost both her parents. She was an orphan. She suffered tremendous loss at a young age. That's a terrible tragedy or trauma for any child to have to go through. Maybe in your life, maybe something like this has happened to you. Maybe you've endured a difficult childhood. Maybe you've even wondered as you become an adult if there's any possibility for any happiness for you in your life or if your life is always going to be filled with problems and tragedies. Remember Esther's story. Those difficult beginnings do not mean that your life is over and that you can never recover from that. The beauty of God is God specializes in second chances and he specializes in comebacks. Think about other people who have lost both parents. I asked Becky to look this up for me. She found some people, uh, some famous people. I'm only going to give you three of them. First of all, the author of the Lord of the Rings, the author of The Hobbit, you know, Smog the Dragon and all that. J.R.R. Tolkien, one of C.S. Lewis's best friends. He lost his mother at age two. He lost his father at age nine. He was put into the ward and care of a priest. And he, and he ended up marrying a beautiful girl and had a great life. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian author, the author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina, he lost his father at age three, lost his own mother at age 12, and yet he went on to live a pretty wonderful life. Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president in the 1930s through the Depression and World War II, the longest reigning president, his wife Eleanor, she lost her mother at age eight and her father at age 10. And she was a very shy, withdrawn girl, but she was taken in by an aunt and she was sent to the finest schools. She was even sent over to Great Britain and she found herself, she was very intelligent and she found her confidence uh, and she became a great lady in our nation's history. So the whole point of that story is that whatever you've gone through, if there's been some real tragedies in your life, you can still overcome that. You can still put the past behind you and live a great life. And you can shine your light and glorify the God who redeemed you through your faith in Jesus Christ. So here Esther is. She's the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. Her, his name is Abihail. Mordecai was good to his family. He took Esther in, raised her. We'll talk about Mordecai in the weeks ahead because Mordecai is another one of the big heroes of this story. Let's just pause right now and, and let's take two takeaways from today's introduction and background to the story of Esther. First of all, let's, let's take some takeaways from King Xerxes' life. He's not the hero of the story, by the way. For King Xerxes, 
The problem that he had was he was filled with pride and ego. And if there's anything you need when, when you're filled up with pride and ego is you've got to watch out that that pride and ego doesn't get in your way and doesn't become a stumbling block to you in your life. When you have a, a big ego and pride, you get offended pretty easily, right? You can let your anger control you. You can let your anger get the best of you. And when you are in a position of power and you get angry and out of control, people have some terrible consequences. They suffer terribly because of your anger. Remember what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 20. He says this, for man's anger... When you and I get angry, what good does it do? He's, if that anger gets out of control, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. If you let your anger get out of control, bad things are going to happen. People around you are going to get hurt and you are going to get hurt. So any kind of a lesson is you might get offended, but you don't have to let your anger go out of control. Watch out for your own ego and for your own anger. And let's go on to Esther. What do we know about Esther right now? Some takeaways from her life. Well, first of all, if you have a bad childhood, if you have a difficult upbringing, maybe you were raised an orphan, maybe you were put in foster care, maybe you were raised by other family members and they didn't really love you the way they should have or treated you right. That bad childhood that you have does not have to ruin your life. You can flourish. You can have a great life despite a difficult past. Esther's an example. Tolkien's an example. Tolstoy's an example. Eleanor Roosevelt is a great example. And you know why? Because you can take the past, you can learn from the past, but you don't live in the past. And you, you're forgiven by God. You have a bright new future. And you can use the gifts God gives you for his glory. Even the gift of physical beauty. Esther used that gift that she was given by God for his glory. Every gift we have. The, James says every good and perfect gift that we have is from above. From the father of heavenly lights. So whatever gift God has given you, whatever talent, whatever ability, use it for his glory. Don't take that gift and use it selfishly, but use it for good. Use it to bless other people. Now, I want to say one other thing to you. Perhaps some of you, as you're listening to this story and you're looking back on your life and the, some of the difficulties you've gone through and the tragedies and the disappointments uh, or life has knocked you down. Maybe you think your life is messed up. Maybe you've gone through too many hard knocks in life to be able to recover. I want you to remember this. No matter what you've gone through, God loves you. God cares about you. And God wants to pick you up. He wants to forgive you of your sins. And he wants to bless your life. Look what David wrote in Psalm 40. After David had experienced the salvation of God, after he had been rescued by God so many times in life-threatening circumstances, so many difficulties, and he said, you know, whatever I had to go through, the Lord brought me through them all. And he, said, he writes this triumphant song. I, I believe that you too, uh, the band with Bono is the lead singer, right? They've sang a great song about this in Psalm 40. He says these words, David, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Boy, when God saves you and you realize that and you feel that down to your toes, what is the reaction? He's going to put a new song in your mouth. He's going to give you a song of praise to your God. And he says, many will see. In other words, it's going public. You know, if, if you've got the joy of the Lord, notify your face, right? Let other people know what God is doing in your life. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so right? Many will see, many will hear and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Friends, today, if you want to begin a new life, if you're ready to say yes to God, if you're ready to receive his forgiveness and put your trust in his son, Jesus, our savior who gave his life for you, I invite you to just bow your head with me and let's talk with God together and just pray this prayer along with me. Just say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want your forgiveness in my life. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross to pay for all of my sins. Lord, I receive your forgiveness today by faith. I'm putting my trust in you as my savior and as my forgiver. Jesus, I declare today, I'm going to follow you and your leadership all the days of my life starting right now, starting today. Lord, help me to take those steps of faith as I follow you so I can know you better and I can grow in my new life as a Christian. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I hope you prayed that prayer. And if you do, God bless you. Welcome to the family of God. The apostle John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, he says, I write these things to you today who believe in the name of the Son of God. If you put your trust in Jesus, the Apostle John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. And if you have eternal life and you're trusting in God on his words, whether you have a feeling inside or not, whether you feel any different after the prayer than before he prayed the prayer, if you put your trust in Jesus by God's promises in his holy word, he says that you have now crossed from death to life. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. How do you know that you have God's forgiveness and new life? Well, number one, because God's word says it's true. But number two, if you feel it and you realize it, you're going to be like David in Psalm 40. God is going to put a new song in your mouth. God is going to put a praise to him in your heart and on your lips. And you're going to want to tell everybody. That's how you can know. God bless you as we continue to follow Christ. We're going to continue in this book of Esther and we'll continue next week.